0: Well, welcome, uh, everyone. I hope uh, you were able to get uh, the or download or print out or put on your computer, whatever you do with the study outline on the Gospel of Mark. And I want to look with you at the introduction. I've decided with this study not to have it uh, the text on PowerPoint, so we're going to read it together, and just like we've done in the previous classes, unlike Ephesians, which was a little bit different. So if you have that packet, uh, I'd invite you to turn to those uh, introductory pages where there's some text and then a couple of charts and map and so on. Um, If you have your uh, notes, let me uh, go through the introduction with you, and I'm going to highlight a couple of things uh, by way of introduction and make a couple of comments about the nature of the gospel. Uh, This is the gospel according to Mark. Who is the Mark here? And if you look in your notes, the Mark here is also named John Mark in uh, several New Testament passages. As a matter of fact, he's mentioned 10 times in the New Testament. And I give you all of those references in your notes. Uh, His name, uh, John, Yon, is the Hebrew name. Mark is his Latin name, hence John Mark. But he becomes known for the most part as just Mark. He was a Jewish Christian. He lived in Jerusalem with his mother Mary. Uh, this uh, mother Mary was a very wealthy woman. She was uh, she's mentioned a couple of times in the book of Acts, and her house, apparently was one of the early house churches in Jerusalem in those very early days of the of the church after Jesus went back to the Father, and Pentecost occurred, and so on. Uh, in terms of the date, as far as we—and uh, there's there's really large consensus on this among New Testament expositors. By far, Mark is the earliest gospel we have. Uh, as a matter of fact, Matthew and Luke, without question, had a copy of the Gospel of Mark when they were writing their, their gospel accounts. Um, there's a, it's hard to be absolutely precise. With Paul, we can be precise in a lot of things. Here, trying to date this gospel, the writing of this gospel, is not quite as easy. There are some who suggest it's as early as 48 or 49 A.D. Others suggest about 55 A.D., so, if you just think of that range between 49 and 55 A.D., by far, that makes it the earliest of the apostles. But I want you to think about that for a minute. Let's just let's just suggest it's 49 A.D. I'm fairly convinced it's earlier, about A.D. 49. Well, the Lord Jesus uh, was crucified on April the third, A.D. 33. Uh, 50 days later, he went back, uh, 40 days later, he went back to the Father, and 10 more days after that was Pentecost. So that's AD 33, AD 45. You see how extraordinary this gospel is. It's written about events that occurred less than 20 years earlier. And even if it's in the mid 50s that it was written, it's about 20 years. From the time Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, ascension, back to the Father occurred, that's why the Gospel of Mark, along with Matthew and Luke, and then John. John is the the latest of the Gospels to be written. You have accounts of historic events within decades. Now, I want to get. I want to make a statement here that is extremely important. No other New Testament. Excuse me. No other document coming out of the ancient world, is recording events that occurred that recent. Um, A number of, I could give you examples. Um, Let me me take some of the philosophies, uh, philosophical books of Aristotle. The the earliest copies we have of Aristotle's work were, were written 700 years after he wrote it. I hope you understand what I just said whereas Mark is recording events that occurred less than 20 years before it was written. And this becomes one of the pieces of evidence that you start to build on the trustworthiness and validity of the New Testament documents. They are recording history. They're recording events that could be validated. The other thing about Mark is Mark. And we know this pretty clearly. Mark's major source was the Apostle Peter. And we will, I'll, I'll, when we go through the gospel, I'll allude to a number of examples of that as, as we go through the material. But that also is important because it, it helps us to see that Mark was a good historian. He's using valid sources who were witness to the events that Mark is recording. And so he's validating this record of Peter as an apostle of Jesus and preserving that apostolic testimony of of, of the apostle Peter. So that's why Mark is such an important gospel. It's the shortest of the gospels. It's only 16 chapters compared to Matthew, which is 28, Luke, which is 28, and John, which is 21. So the importance of Mark is as an early gospel account, is to whom is he writing? Wh- whom is he trying to convince that that this is a true gospel, true good news about a Savior, Jesus the Christ? Um, again, we are pretty certain he's writing this to the Greco-Roman world. He's not writing it to Jews, and he's not writing it to the Jews of the diaspora. He's writing it to Greco-Roman people to prove to them that Jesus is their Savior and their Lord. And so Mark is going to take his time to explain certain Jewish traditions or Jewish rituals. He's going to take his time to explain certain Jewish specifics that need to be explained if the Greco-Roman world is going to understand what he's talking about. And so what I do at the bottom then of your, of your introductory notes on page one is the, what I think are the four major purposes that you see in the, in the Gospel of Mark. To preserve Peter's apostolic testimony, to proclaim the gospel to the Gentile, to explain Jewish customs and traditions, and that you're going to see that. Whereas Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, he's writing to Jews. He doesn't have to explain anything, but Mark does. And then finally, and this is, this is one of the important contributions of Mark, to explain the nature of discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And he's going to use the words of Jesus as well as the events of Jesus' life to to demonstrate that. Then on the next page, I just give you two, two charts that summarize for us the basic structure of the Gospel of Mark, the one at the top, and then the one at the bottom is a synthetic chart by Chuck Swindoll, which if you've been in any of these classes before, each time we do a book, I give you a copy of one of his synthetic charts. Excuse me. I needed to blow my nose there. And so I will be referring back to these periodically as we go through the, uh, the, the material in the Gospel of Mark. But you'll see he has two primary focal points after the introduction. He wants to focus on the key events that Jesus, that summarize Jesus' public ministry of about three years And then the second half of the book from chapter 8 through chapter uh, 16 is focusing on Jesus going to Jerusalem and going through all of the testimonies and and, and miracles and work during Passion Week from from the triumphal entry of Christ on Palm Sunday until his crucifixion and resurrection. And so Mark gives almost half of his book focused on that. And so therefore, it's again quite unique in what he's trying to do. One other thing I want to do as we get started, if you'll take a look at the map on page three, and in, in subsequent classes, I am going to put have this on PowerPoint because I'm going to be referring to it, but I want to remind you of something. When you are thinking about the geography of Jesus in his three years of public ministry, I want you to remember the geography of the this part of the of this part of the eastern mediterranean to the north is galilee now galilee is a rich agricultural region nazareth where jesus was raised remember he was born in bethlehem but he was raised in nazareth nazareth is in galilee then between galilee now go to the very south is judea judea is where jerusalem is Galilee is a rich agricultural area, lush with agricultural products, whereas Judea is a mountainous area. Jerusalem is on a mountaintop. It's 2,500 feet above sea level. And much of Judea is mountainous, very hilly areas. There's not a lot of agriculture in Judea. In between Galilee and Judea is Samaria. Now, you perhaps know this, or best to remind you of it, Samaria, between, sandwiched between Galilee to the north, Judea to the south, is inhabited by Samaritans. And they are half, this is what Jews called them at the time, they're half-breeds. That's not an unkind, that's, I don't mean to be unkind, that's what they referred to them. Uh, They're half-Jewish. Because during the Assyrian conquest of the Northern Kingdom, way back in 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire moved a lot of the Jews out, and then moved a lot of Gentiles in. And the Jews that remain intermarried with those Gentiles. Hence, half-breeds. They're half-Jewish. And the Samaritans, who inhabited Samaria, were despised by the Jews. And you, if you've studied the Gospel of John, and you're in John chapter 4... Jesus chooses to go through Samaria, and that's where he meets the woman at the well, uh, Jacob's well, actually, near Sychar. But anyway, that, that, to understand that geography, you have to always remember that Galilee is to the north, rich agricultural land. Judea is to the south, a mountainous area, not a lot of farming areas, because Jerusalem is on a mountaintop, and then in between is Samaria fairly mountainous, the mountains of Samaria, but there is some agricultural area as you get closer to the Mediterranean. And that division between the Galilee and Judea is Samaria, and the Jews would not go through Samaria. That's what's so extraordinary about Jesus doing that. They would either take the road along the coast, Mediterranean coast, which was called the Via Maris, or they would go the King's Highway, which was a road started down in Samaria, went up to Damascus, that went through the area east of the Jordan River. When Jesus, um, uh, well, let me put it this way, when Mary and Joseph traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, they would have taken the King's Highway. They would have gone along that kind of high road east of the Jordan River through the Jordan Mountains. And so, just that geography is really, really important. I will keep referring to that. I'll keep talking about that. But by way of introduction, I wanted to make sure that you kind of have that hopefully somewhat cemented in your mind, uh, the geography of the Eastern Mediterranean world at the time of Christ. Are you with me on that? Okay. Okay. So when I say Galilee, immediately you're thinking that's the north. That's a rich agricultural region. I see Judea. That's where Jerusalem is, a more high mountainous area, and then in between, sandwiched in between is Samaria. Can I ask a question? Any other questions about the the introduction to Mark? Who is Mark? To whom is he writing? And the early date for the gospel? They're the key things I want you to remember. I have a question. Oh, yeah, sure. Um. This is, uh, is uh, Sumeria. Is that this? Is that Sumer, as in oh, no. Sargon? That's a different place. That's that's uh, Mesopotamia, further to the east, where modern Kuwait is today. That was uh, that was the Sumerian Empire, the earliest civilization in recorded history. What what about the Akkadians? Where do they fit into the Bible? The Akkadian Empire is a little north of Sumer. Mm-hmm. Again, that's very. that's very, you're, you're really in the early years right. of, of ancient world history. You're 3000 BC or so. So it's not mentioned in scripture? Uh, no, not not really. I mean, Abraham is about 2100 BC, and the Akkadian Empire and all that would be earlier than that. Now, right. he, uh, Abraham lived in Ur of the Chaldees, which would have been the remnants right. of the old Sumerian Empire because the Sumerian Empire was really a collection of city-states, and one of those city-states was Ur. I thought Ur was like in Iraq, way north of Kuwait. Well, it, it is, but this, the Sumerian Empire then continued to grow, Ah, uh, okay. and it, it. It, it extended well into, and really, Kuwait is a very tiny country. And right. Ur, Ur is, it. many of the guys who were in the Iraq War went to visit Ur because of its historical value. Thank yep. you. All right. All right, if you kind of with me on that introduction, let's start the Gospel of Mark, and I want to uh, spend a fair amount of time on the introduction, and it, it is really interesting how Mark does this. If you go to Ma- Matthew or you go to Luke, they're interested in the genealogy of Jesus. They want to show that Jesus has the right to claim the throne of David. They want to show that he is the Messiah of Israel. Mark's writing to Gentiles. That wouldn't matter to them. And so he begins, look at verse 1. It's the thesis of the book. It's a thesis statement of the book. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so I want you to to focus on the term beginning. What is he interested in? The beginning of Jesus as the incarnate God? The beginning of Jesus in eternity? That's what John does, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. No, this is the beginning of the Gospel. So for the Gentile audience of the Greco-Roman world, the gospel is good news. The gospel is about redemption and salvation from sin. And the beginning of the good news is focusing on a person. And that person, now notice the titles. Jesu Christos Huias, Seos. Jesus is a Hebrew name for Savior. Christ is the Greek title for Messiah, and then the Son of God. So the gospel begins with the story of the Savior, the Messiah, the second person of the Trinity. And so you have a phenomenal and it really is phenomenal, summary of who Jesus is in one sentence. But what Mark is doing is, for a Greco-Roman audience who doesn't understand Jewish tradition, doesn't understand, that would not understand the importance of genealogies, and Mark's not interested in dealing with any of that. He wants right out of the chute to lay out his thesis. This is the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news, and it starts with the person. Who is the person? The Savior, Messiah, the Son of God. And so immediately for a Gentile in those early years of the first century, this would cause them to be stirred. Whoa, I, I need to understand what he's talking about here. Jesus Christas hui are I said that all in Greek, but this this is phenomenally important titles that would have been in the Greek language. And even Messiah, Messiah, or in Hebrew, or Christos in Greek, is anointed one. And that was used, but for you and me, Messiah has deep theological implications. But to say it this way, immediately it's alerting the Greco-Roman world you need to find out more about who this is. I'm telling you who he is. I'm telling you his titles. I'm summarizing his work, and I'm telling you this is good news. So what he does in verse 2 is he ties this title and this thesis to a text in the Old Testament. Now, granted, Many in the Greco-Roman world, some would have been familiar with, but many in the Greco-Roman world are not real familiar with Old Testament text. But he needs to do that to establish a basis of authority for being able to make these claims. And so he goes to the Old Testament prophet, who, by the way, is the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. It's Isaiah. many, many, many prophets. You know, there are four major prophets and 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. But Isaiah is the most quoted one. So he goes to, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, this is from Isaiah chapter 40, but also a little segment from Malachi 3.1, and then an allusion to Exodus 23.20, which is really remarkable. So, whom is he talking about? He's talking about John the Baptist. But what he does is he establishes that this person, John, You'll see in verse 4, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness. He needs to establish some authority for bringing this guy, John, up. And that authority is a prophet. And it is an important prophet of the Old Testament. As I stated a moment ago, the most quoted prophet of the Old Testament, which is is Isaiah. (coughs) And so what is he doing? Hmm. One of the pieces of evidence to prove the thesis that this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is to show the fulfillment of prophetic scripture. Now, the Greco-Roman world was very interested in prophecy, and I don't mean Old Testament prophecy the way you and I think of prophecy, but they, they were constantly, constantly consulting all kinds of oracles to try to determine the future. If I send my ships to fight against the Persians at Salamis, will my ships be victorious? That was asked of, of the oracle at Delphi at the beginning of the second phase of the Persian War. They want to know prophecy. They want to know someone whom they can rely on to, to have valid predictions about the future so they can act on that. So Mark is doing something that is a very, very consistent with how the Greco-Roman world thought about things. I want this validated by prophecy. Some some sage, some oracle, the oracle of Delphi—I mean, there were were dozens of these oracles all over the Greco-Roman world. But he's not appealing to them, he's appealing to the Word of God. Now granted, many of these Greco-Roman people aren't going to accept that until they start to see the evidence. He's beginning to present the evidence. So in this Isaiah the prophet, in 700 B.C., he prophesied that there would be a messenger who would prepare the way of this Jesus Christ, Son of God person. He'll be the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Who is that? Verse 4, it's John. Now, notice what he does. John appeared. By the way, that's a really important word there. John appeared. It's like, boom, all of a sudden he appears. And that's exactly right. You have a little bit of his heritage in the book of Luke. And all of a sudden, he's in the Judean wilderness baptizing people. John appeared. Where? In the wilderness. And that phrase, in the wilderness, takes you back to verse 3. John is intentionally quoting from the prophecy to say, see, this was declared in 700 BC, 700 years later, it's now occurring. He's in the wilderness. And what is he doing? Proclaiming a baptism of repentance for, I want to say something about that preposition, for the forgiveness of sin. So let's Look at what Mark is telling us, which is, is he summarizing, what was this John doing? How was he preparing a way for the Messiah? How was he preparing a way for the Savior? How was he preparing a way for the Son of God? He's in the wilderness, baptizing people. Now, I want to remind you, what does baptism mean? Now, immediately, I think all of you are very familiar with the ordinance of baptism, and I I don't don't want to talk about the mode. I don't talk about who it is, just the mode or the ordinance of baptism. The word baptism is really transliterating a word from the Greek language and bringing it into English. B-A-P-T-I-Z-O is how you would baptizo. It was used It was used in the cloth industry, in in the industry that was very much a part of the the world, of the Greco-Roman world, the textile industry, because clothing and cloth were so important. And the baptizo was you would take a white piece of cloth and you would baptize it into a vat of dye. That sounds funny, but what does that mean? You immerse it into that vat of dye, you pull it out, and it now is identified with that purple, or that blue, or that red, or whatever the color of the dye was. That white cloth has been baptized. It now takes on a new identity. So when the New Testament uses the word baptizo, baptize is a verb, baptism is a noun, it is, you you must think how the ancient world person would process what you're saying. So, a baptism of repentance is you're identifying with something. A baptism of repentance. Now, repentance in the Greek is metanoia. You're changing your mind about something. What are you changing your mind about? You're changing your mind about God. You're changing your mind about what he's doing. You're changing your mind about your problem, which is the problem of sin, and you're beginning to understand God is doing something. So John the Baptist is out in the Judean wilderness along the Jordan River preaching. We're going to read in a couple of verses what he looked like, and he is declaring something. I'm cutting the path for the Messiah, and you're going to read more about what he said in just a minute. But what he is doing is he's calling people to a identification with someone, something that is going to bring profound change. What is it? It's the gospel, verse 1. And this will produce, this will lead to, this will be with reference to. That's what that little Greek word that's translated for, F-O-R, for the forgiveness of sins. It's e i s. Which should, but it makes it cumbersome. A baptism of repentance with reference to, or leading to, the forgiveness of sins. The baptism isn't what produces forgiveness; it leads to that. It it is re- re- ha- referencing that. So there's a commit a complete transformation of your understanding. You are changing your mind about everything. And so John the Baptist is out in Judean wilderness, how's he preparing the way for the Messiah? He's announcing, he's announcing something. He's announcing a Messiah, he's announcing an anointed one who's going to solve your problem, your problem of sin. And I want you to identify with him. I want you to be ready for him. This isn't the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That comes later with Jesus and then in Pentecost. This is you're identifying with the coming Messiah. You are aligning yourself with him. And for Jews, and that's primarily who's going out to the Judean wilderness to be baptized, these are Jews, and if they're being baptized, they are now ready for the Messiah. They are now recognizing he's coming. I'm identifying with him. I'm ready. So John is cutting that path, preparing the people. And then John, excuse me, then Mark in verse 5, is, it's, it's kind of an amazing verse. It's filled with some hyperbole, language of, G, of exaggeration. And all the country of Jerusalem, of Judea, and all Jerusalem. Well, that's hyperbole. That's the language of exaggeration. Because not every single person who lived in Judea and every single person who lived in Jerusalem is going out to the Judean wilderness along the Jordan River to see John. But Matthew tells us people are swarming out to see John the Baptist. So what John Mark is doing is saying, using a language of exaggeration, not just a few people, a large number of Judean and Jerusalem Jews are going out to see John, so Jim, and were Jim. being baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sin. Yes. Um, so, Jim, where Jim, you, why, why where do you think you are doing, doing that? Located. Uh, All right, wait, no, wait a minute. I've got two people asking me a question at the same time. Okay, I give up. Uh, well, Go ahead, uh, Okay, Glenn, what did you say? Why do you think they're swarming out? Well, Let's go uh, you know, it, 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 it would be hard to answer that question because you're dealing with, you know, answering the, the issue of motivation of why people are doing what they're doing. But um, I think there's a degree, uh, Glenn, of curiosity, of sensationalism. I mean, this is, this is an extraordinary, an extraordinary event. This is not the norm in Judea. And so to hear, and, and, and with that, it, it, you're going to see it in, in verse 6, and you're going to see it in verse 7. Let me add another important thought here. Malachi chapter 4, the last book of the Old Testament, in effect says, watch for the coming of Elijah. Elijah will announce the Messiah. And so as John the Baptist is out in the Judean wilderness, and when you, when you look at the material that describes him in verse 6, he's dressing like Elijah. You go back to 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, he looks like Elijah. So I think, Glenn, there is that additional element of, whoa, messianic expectation is already pretty high right now, in Judea. And now there's a guy out along the Jordan River in the Judean wilderness, dressing like Elijah, talking like Elijah, and cutting the path, he says, for the coming Messiah. And we want to identify with this. We want to be a part of this. And what is he asking us to do, to be identified with? To be baptized as to confess our sins. This man is representing God who's going to solve our problems. And so there's a lot of expectation. It's heightened. We already know this from extra biblical literature. There's a heightened anticipation. Messianic fervor is running high in those early decades of the first century. And so all this is coalescing around the curiosity. Who is this guy out in the Judean wilderness? He acts like, dresses like, and talks like Elijah. Could he be the Elijah figure of Malachi 4? And many people are saying, yeah, you got to go out and see this guy. I was out there two weeks ago. It's incredible. And so they're swarming out. Does that answer your question? It, it does. One, one more question. Uh, you had talked about uh, the baths at, in front of the temple, um, that they, they also considered that a baptism, correct? Can you tie yeah. the two, that, that tradition that the Jews had? With um, the the dyeing of the cloth? Well, I think, uh, well, I don't know about that last part, but they're, they're called the mikvotes All around the Jerusalem temple, even today, if you ever visit there, you see the remnants of these mikvots. And they were the ritualistic cleansing pools. And so a, the Jewish mindset, go ahead, the Jewish mindset was already aware of and understood a baptismal cleansing. That's what the mikvotes were all about. That was that ritualistic cleansing. And so what John is proclaiming is a different dimension of ritualistic cleansing. This is associated with the coming of the Messiah. But for them to this to the idea of of a baptism immersion into water, etc is not an, a foreign thought to a Jew of the first century. This ritualistic cleansing, these ritualistic pools of cleansing, was a very common part of their life. And there are literally dozens of them all around the around Temple Mount today. I mean, I've been there many times in my life, and literally there are dozens of them. And that's why, now another quick sidebar, when you read that on Pentecost, 3,000 people were baptized, I have no problem understanding how they baptized 3,000 people. There are dozens of these microbeats all over the place. It's been very easy to baptize that many people. Woody, you had a question. Yeah, I, I just was wondering if uh, where this wilderness is. Is this wilderness that uh, John the Baptist appeared? Was it in Judea or, or if, uh, near a river? Uh, I don't see if, the river on the map. And- if you If you look on your map on page three of your notes... There's a, a colored map there right along the Jordan River. The white rectangular box, almost right in the center of the map. The sites where John um, frequently baptized. you see that? It's near a little area called Salim. Yeah. I see. I- but it's right along the Jordan River. OK, I got that. And then, and then uh, who were who they confessing to, each other? Um, well, well, it would be in the presence of others, but confessing their sins to God. Okay, thank you. The word confess, confess it means you're agreeing with God. You're agreeing. When, you, when the, the Bible says confess, that means you're agreeing with what God says about your life. The sin, the need to deal with that sin. And so that's what they're saying. This is why John is preparing the people spiritually. For the coming of the Messiah. And because, you know, when John, uh, this is in John chapter 1, the gospel of John chapter 1, when John the Baptist sees Jesus walking on the sea of Galilee, remember what he says? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So John the Baptist understood what Jesus was going to do. John the Baptist is preparing people to accept the coming of the Messiah, who will deal with their sin problem, and part of that cutting the path and that time of preparation is for them to come to terms. Your problem isn't Rome. Your problem isn't the Roman legions occupying your country. Your problem is the personal challenge of sin in your life. There's coming one who's going to deal with that, and so, I mean, it's just a remarkable... A variety of things all coming together. Messianic expectation is high. The The idea of Elijah coming before the Messiah comes, Malachi chapter, and all that stuff. And then you have this guy seemingly imitating Elijah, intentionally so, out in the gean wilderness along the Jordan River baptizing people. A lot of people are going to go out. I want to find out what's going on. Is this a sign that the Messiah is coming? And then John, Mark, in verse 6, he tells us John was clothed—this is John the Baptist—was clothed with camel's hair, wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. If you go to 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, that is Elijah. That is how Elijah was positioning himself during the time of King Ahab. You remember all that, the Baal worship, terrible things that were going on in the northern kingdom. And then if you are taking notes, just write down Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. I'm going to allude to that a little bit later on. But that is an important passage that connects Elijah with John the Baptist. And we'll say more about that coming up, because that's also going to be a part of the transfiguration uh, narrative later on in the book. And in verse 7. And he, the he there would be John the Baptist, he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. And that, that is a, again, kind of a remarkable statement. Mightier than I, a strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down. He's, he's stating something there. If you If you think I'm important, knock it off. The one who's coming that I'm preparing for, that I'm cutting the path for, he's the one that's really important. He's the Lord. If you look at the end of verse 3, that quotation from, from, uh, from Isaiah and Malachi, prepare the way of the Lord. And so John is saying, one who's coming after me is mightier than I, this dropping who sandals, I'm not worthy to stoop down. This is the Lord. This is Yahweh manifested. This is Yahweh incarnate. This is Adonai revealed. I'm using all those titles that come out of the Old Testament. I mean, what John is John the Baptist is saying here is absolutely extraordinary. Now, whether every single Jewish person hearing him talk like that completely understood Obviously, I can't say that. I would doubt that they all understood it, but many did. And then he declares something else. This is in verse 8. I have baptized you with water, but he, this coming one, this messianic figure, this son of God, this savior, going back to the thesis in verse 1, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're jotting notes down, jot Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. Because this is an indicator of the new covenant. This is a mark of the new covenant that he will inaugurate. And the sign of the new covenant is the Holy Spirit. And so John the Baptist is laying out, and, and this is the typical docudrama approach of Mark. I mean, what he's doing in verses 4 through 8 is he's distilling down into a small number of verses an enormous amount of material. That's in a whole chapter in the Gospel of Matthew and in a major part of the early chapters of the Gospel of Luke. He distills it down into four or five verses. Who is John? Who is Jesus. He's one who fulfills prophecy, and the first one to look at is this prophecy about the one who cuts the path for the way of the Lord, and his name is John. And he's an Elijah-like figure, fulfilling the prophetic declarations of Malachi 4. He dresses like him, talks like him, eats like him, and he is saying, the one that I'm preparing is greater than I am, he's the Lord verse 3, and he will inaugurate the new covenant. The ba- he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And, and again, think of how baptized, how you think of the word baptized. You will be identified with the Holy Spirit. You will be identified with the new covenant. The sign of that new covenant is the Holy Spirit. And Ezekiel prophesied that in, in chapter 36 of his, his great work. And into So, John, all of this, and what Mark is doing here is he's tying all of this stuff into a very quick, fast paced narrative about John the Baptist. And then it's over. And immediately he gets to Jesus being baptized, which is what verse 9 is about. Okay, and I, I'm trying not to go too fast, but I. I hate to go slow, so I keep being fast-paced. So if I need to slow down, tell me. Are you with me? Everybody tracking with me? Yes. Okay. Good. Let's move then to the next verse that actually uh, it will go, again, here you see this docudrama approach. He is going to give three verses to the baptism of Jesus. (laughs) Matthew gives a whole chapter to it chapter 3 of the Gospel is all about the baptism of Jesus. Mark gives three verses to it, but let's see what he says. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John. Now, we need to think about this in just a minute, in just, uh, for just a little bit, So Jesus, and and you can look at your map on on page 7 there, and you can see where Nazareth was. Nazareth is in Galilee. And so Jesus would have gone uh, gone across to the the road that I mentioned, that King's Highway, would have headed south to Salim and met John there. And the text tells us, Mark tells us, that he goes there to be baptized by, by John. Now, you think, okay, just a minute. We just read that John's baptism is baptism repentance. We just read that these people going out to be with John along the Jordan River in the Judean wilderness are confessing their sins as they're being baptized. Jesus doesn't have to repent of anything. Jesus doesn't have to confess any of his sins. So what is he doing? Jesus is identifying with the people for whom he will die. Baptism is an act of identification. So as these people are being baptized, Jesus is being baptized as he identifies with them. But it also is, and we know that because of the next verse, verse 10, Jesus' public baptism, because it was a public baptism, presumably there were dozens, more than likely hundreds of people that witnessed this. This is the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry. His obscure first 30 plus one or two years, not exactly sure, but his his obscure silent years are going to end, and his baptism begins the three years of public ministry, which will culminate in his death, burial, and resurrection. So, because of verse 10, this baptism of Jesus in a highly public uh, um, venue is announcing something, declaring something. He's identifying with his people, but look at verse 10. When he come up out of the water Immediately. By the way, that is John Mark's favorite word. It's an adverb. He uses it 41 times in this book. It is is an indication of how fast-paced Mark is in his writing of his gospel. Immediately, immediately, immediately. He keeps saying it over and over and over again. And immediately he, that would be Jesus, saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove, like as a simile, it isn't a dove, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So Jesus is identifying with his people as he now is beginning his public ministry, and that is validated by three supernatural divine events. Event number one, the heavens are opened. The heavens which had been closed, this is metaphorically, for 400 years, because when the the ink on the book of Malachi dried, God would not speak again until he spoke through his son the incarnation of his Son. So now the heavens are opened once again. And secondly, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus, anoints Jesus. Now you're thinking, wait a minute. Why does Jesus have to be anointed with the Spirit? Why does Jesus have to have the Holy Spirit indwelling him? Well, that's very important. Mark, Matthew chapter 12 helps us to understand that. Jesus chooses, now listen very carefully to what I'm about to say, Jesus chooses to live his life in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Because in Matthew chapter 12, when the Pharisees, they can't explain what Jesus is doing, all his miracles, all of his divine healings, all all the incredible things he's doing, And they only have two choices. He's either doing this by the power of Satan, or he's doing it by the power of God. And they're not going to say he's doing it by the power of God. They have to acknowledge who he is. So they say, you're doing it by the power of Beelzebul, an old Canaanite name for Satan. And Jesus says, I do my work by the Holy Spirit. And if you keep saying, I'm doing my work by the Power of Satan. You're slandering the Holy Spirit. You're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But remember what he said I do my work by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, chose to be in dependence on the third person of the Trinity to the glory of the first person of the Trinity. And that is why. The Apostle Paul, we just studied that a few weeks ago in Ephesians chapter 5, 18, verse 18 says, Be filled with the Holy Spirit, be under the control of the Holy Spirit. Who showed us how to do that? Answer Jesus. And so as the Holy Spirit at the de- de- descends upon Jesus and anoints him, Jesus now is choosing to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. For these remaining three years of his public ministry. And then a third. Divine. Event occurs. The father speaks. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. That is a combination. Of three. Old Testament. Messianic texts. It is. Psalm 2. Verse 7. Isaiah. 42 verse 1, and Genesis 22, verse 2. So the Father is declaring, this is the Son, my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. You are my Son, Psalm 2, verse 7. My beloved Son, Genesis 22, verse 2, with you I'm well pleased. Isaiah 42, verse 1. All three are messianic texts, and the Father Father summarizes them in one declaration. So this event, the baptism of Jesus, is the inauguration of his public ministry. He is now ready. He's identified with his people via the baptism. He that the heavens have opened after 400 years of silence, and the Spirit now anoints Jesus for his public ministry, and the Father speaks. The Trinity, the Trinity is now actively engaged in solving the problems of the human race. It's called the program of redemption. And so Jesus is now going to announce what he's doing for the next seven chapters through the Gospel of Mark, because the next seven chapters—well, I should say, really, it's the rest of chapter 1 through chapter 8—that's what Mark's going to do. All of the proof of who he is. Who is he? This is the beginning of the Gospel. Jesus Christ, Son of God. Those eight chapters are going to prove it. That's the thesis. Now it has begun. The rescue plan has begun, and it's now inaugurated. The silence of 400 years has been broken. The Spirit has descended. The Father has spoken. And what's the very first thing Jesus must do? He must be tempted by Satan. All right, now let me stop for a moment. What time is it here? Let me stop. Oh my goodness, it's 20 Um, See if you have any questions about the baptism of Jesus. You all with me on that? Yep. I have a a couple. Um, One is you you mentioned that the heavens opened. Um, I read that kind of like rending or tearing. um, And I, I see that a little more literal than metaphorical because people saw and spirit descended from this like it was a source. Um, could you? It, how how strongly uh, do you hold to a metaphorical interpretation? Well, it's of it? I, well, I, it's both literal and metaphorical. Because I mean, I read from the ESV translation they have translated "tore open," and I mean, it, it, but you, you do have to see this, though, also, also metaphorically. Because now God is going exactly. to speak after 400 years of silence. Yep. It's compound. The compound. Okay. I get. I, I haven't quote quote had been closed close quote for 400 years. Now the heavens are open close quote for now because the father is going to speak from here on out. Everything changes. It's an actual event, but it also is layered on an illusion, which is very common through scripture, that kind of weaving together. Okay, I got it. I mean, this is Um, that's why this is a seminal watershed event. Got it. The The silence um, has ended, the redemptive plan has begun, it's now operational. And that's why the Holy Spirit coming and the Father's declaration. I mean, this here again, this is what's so marvelous about this. The Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit, one essence of three persons, different relation and functionally, have now inaugurated the The plan is on track. It has begun. And so it's just a fantastic watershed in redemptive history. But what what is equally incredible in the real meaning of that overused word is the very first thing Jesus must do. Look at verse 12. And the ESV has translated this wonderfully. Then the Spirit immediately, there's Mark's favorite word 41 times, immediately drove him into the wilderness. Now, we just read that the Spirit's anointed him. I gave you some allusion to Matthew chapter 12, where the Lord Jesus is dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Here's an example of his dependence. Jesus does not act independent of the Father and the Spirit. He acts in conjunction with the Trinitarian nature of God. This is how the program works. The very first thing Jesus must do is go to the wilderness to be tempted. Now, here again is the docudrama approach of Mark. He gives two verses to the temptation of Jesus. Matthew gives a whole chapter to it. Chapter four of the Gospel of Matthew is the account of the temptation. Mark gives two verses to it. So we have to talk a little bit about this. He, he the Holy Spirit, drives Jesus into the wilderness. And he's in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. Satan means adversary. Romans, uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 gives all the titles of Satan, but he's the adversary. So what does this mean? In Mark's language that he uses throughout his gospel, this is equally as important. As the 400 years of silence have now been broken, and God has spoken again, and the plan to redeem and rescue humanity has begun, it's now operational. There's also the important understanding, Jesus is invading Satan's kingdom. Jesus is here to invade, to plunder the kingdom of darkness. He will now do battle with his chief adversary, i.e. Satan. Mark does not tell us the three temptations. Mark does not go into detail about each one of them. He's just saying, by the way, the beginning of his public ministry means he's invading Satan's kingdom. I like to put it this way. He's taking back the kingdom. Satan has usurped it, Genesis 3. When human the human race joined the rebellion against Satan, Satan became the prince of power of the air, the god of this age. I'm using quotations from the New Testament. So now, Jesus allows himself, independence under the Holy Spirit, for 40 days to be tempted by Satan. And he was with with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. At the end of Matthew's account in chapter 4, after Jesus is done and Satan has been dismissed, then it says the angels ministered to Jesus. And what that undoubtedly means, because Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, is that they then helped feed him, helped nurture him physically and spiritually as the God-man. But it's interesting that he chooses, he, Mark, chooses to tell us something that none of the other Gospels tell us, that in the wilderness he's not only facing his chief adversary, he's in grave danger, physically speaking, with lots of wild animals. Now, the Judean wilderness in the first century is much different than the Judean wilderness in the 21st century. There were, there were wild animals that were very life-threatening. And so you, just, you, you get a sense from just these two verses that the immediate, the immediate aspect of Jesus' public ministry is to confront evil in all of its dimensions. And what better place to start than his chief adversary? Satan, in the most frail, vulnerable state you could be in. He's fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in a wilderness where there's the danger of wild animals, yet the Father's protecting him. And when it's over, angels minister to him. Remember, angels, angelos, means the messengers of God. And so You have this, you know, we've only done 13 verses, but you have this docudrama approach that Mark takes. Bang, bang, bang. One sequence, if not, if nothing's done. He doesn't give us enormous detail. He just focuses on the event and he's done with it. But you and I have to step back and really meditate upon what's the significance of this event. Why the temptation? I just tried to explain it to you. Now, tomorrow, what we'll do is, I I don't mean tomorrow, I mean next Wednesday, what we'll do is we'll see the actual beginning of Christ's public ministry, which starts with verse 14. And like I said, it's going to go through chapter 8, and then things are going to start to change as Christ heads to Jerusalem, and then you know what happens in Jerusalem. All right, can I quit? Are you with me? Yes. Yes. All right. I hope you're going to enjoy Mark. It's uh, I haven't studied Mark in a long time, so I'm enjoying preparing for it, and I hope it'll be a blessing for you as we study this together. I'm going to pray. I need to get going here and, and let you go, and I'll see you next Wednesday. Remember, the 16th, we will not be meeting. We will meet next week, but then in two weeks, I'll be gone. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for inspiring the word. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that. And thank you, Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2 tells us this. You help us to not only understand what you've inspired, but to welcome it, to embrace it so that it can transform us. I'm excited about our study of the Gospel of Mark. It's a unique gospel, unlike Matthew and Luke and John. But it's fast-paced, and yet it zeroes in on these key events which help us to understand Jesus Christ Christ Son of God. That's the thesis. And he's going to unpack all the evidence to prove that thesis as we study it together. Bless these dear guys. Give them a good rest of this day. Help them in all their work and responsibilities, all of the things that they are involved in. Help them to be alert to the divine appointments you may have for them. And may they always seek as strong men of faith, strong men of God, who walk with you in obedience to represent you well. Commit each one to you. In Christ's name, amen. All right, man, we'll see you. you next week. Thank you, man. Take care. Have a good week. Thank you. You too.